Hi, welcome to Lakeland Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Jesse Keller, and I've got a special guest today. I've got John Beyer, one of my colleagues and our local EMS director. John, thanks for being on the program. Thanks a lot for inviting me. So today we're going to talk a little about lights and sirens. I know the first time when I was a resident in the radio room, and uh, I had I had the nurse say, do, do you want them to come in a code three? And I said, yeah, sounds good. And then I walk away, and then my attending says, do you know what you just did? I said, no, I have no idea what I said yesterday. He says, the back pain's coming in, lights and sirens. And so that was my first introduction to the topic. And um, let's let's talk about lights and sirens right off the bat, a little bit about maybe its historical significance. Where, where did this, you know, turn, you know, going lights and sirens come from? So EMS was born from the fire service, and the fire service for generations has been using lights and sirens to get through traffic quickly because a house fire is a increasingly consuming process. It's just going to get worse if you don't get there. So to save lives and property, they would try to shave off precious seconds to get to a scene because EMS was born from the same culture. The opinion was getting to a medical scene faster could only be of benefit. And so that's why it was done. It's a time-dependent problem. Get to the scene as quick as possible. That was the thought. So go lights and sirens. Okay. What does it do to you when you, as far as when you're going out on a call, you know, going out lights and sirens versus going out regular? How, what is the, what is it like in the rig, both going to the scene and and going to the hospital once you pick up the patient? While you're going to the scene, it still increases your danger because anytime you run a red light, other pedestrians, other travelers, as they go about their day, they're used to green light means go, red light means yes. If they have a green light, but somebody shoots through their red light from the opposite direction, that disrupts traffic. So going to a scene can be dangerous. Coming back from the scene, if you're driving to the hospital with lights and sirens, very concerning because if you're trying to do a procedure, you're probably not restrained with a seatbelt. With lights and sirens, you increase your chances of an accident. So if you're involved in a car accident while trying a procedure and you're unbelted, The ambulance is going to come to a stop. An ambulance is a very big space on the inside. The person on the inside is going to get thrown and going to hit one of the sharp pointy objects or corners in the ambulance. And paramedics, unfortunately, have died this way. So tell me a little bit about how much time, because I know if I'm sitting with a broken leg, I want the EMS to come get me quick. How much time is it going to be different between whether or not they are going to come lights and sirens versus just standard? So there's been several studies and the data differs slightly on urban versus rural environments, but generally the studies have shown that the saving, the time savings between lights and sirens and no lights and sirens is anywhere between 30 seconds and two and a half minutes. So I think that's significant because that time frame is not as much as I would think. So tell me, why doesn't it make a bigger difference? Why isn't it more like five, 10 minutes? Because I mean, I feel like, you know, they're going fast down the road. They're able to avoid traffic lights. To me, it, it seems like the time frame would be more significant. So the reality is you still can't fly through stop signs without stopping. You can't do an infinitely high amount of speed. There are other people on the road that you have to give due regard to. So while it looks like they're saving a lot of time by going through a stoplight, they still have to cover the same amount of distance either way. And it's not a straight way, do 100 miles an hour straight. They still have to stop for lights, look both ways. You're not shaving that much time off. So can you, are there certain situations where the literature supports getting there 30 seconds faster? The literature doesn't support going faster or slower one way or the other. There are several time-dependent entities that are recognized for being very sensitive. One of them, the most famous, would be cardiac arrest. And because everyone knows for every minute of cardiac arrest, there's about a 10% increase in mortality. 
Unfortunately, the answer to this doesn't lie in increasing your speed. The answer lies in having closer resources, which is why for cardiac arrest, we really emphasize bystander CPR. We emphasize police officer CPR. No one's closer than the person standing next to you. Right. So that's why American Heart has made such an effort into getting close by people to help because they understand that no matter how fast an ambulance goes, it's not going to get there as fast as you'd like it to. And you mentioned some of the risks involved as far as, you know, putting the rig itself in danger and the and the pedestrians around. Is there literature on the risk of going lights and sirens? Yeah, there's actually good literature. There's a 2014 study from NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, on ambulance accidents. And it shows that if you are involved in an uh, ambulance accident, if you are the person being hit, most likely a civilian, you are much more likely to suffer harm and death than the people in the ambulance or the fire truck, mostly because of physics. If you think about it, the ambulance or the fire truck, enormous vehicles with a huge amount of weight behind them. The average American car, much smaller. So I think that's something that you, you have to weigh then when you're wanting to determine whether you're gonna go lights and sirens. Yeah, you wanna to get to your patients as quick as you're possible, but you also don't wanna put that patient and the paramedics at risk. Correct, it's a public health matter, it truly is. You really wanna think about risk and benefit. And for most disease processes, the risk of killing someone on the road is not outweighed by a 30 second time benefit. So now that we've talked about the risks, what are some of the barriers to implementing policy changes where you do restrict the use of lights and sirens? So there's quite a few public perception issues. Most people in the public associate lights and sirens and the sound of that siren as help is coming to me. They think, wow, they're taking this as, as urgently as I am. People are taking me seriously. This is an emergency. So you have to overcome that public perception with education. It takes a lot. You have to introduce people to the literature slowly and teach them that, you know, we are coming for you. We do take your emergency seriously, but we also value the lives of the people on the street and therefore want to keep them safe as well. I can't come help you if I'm involved in a car accident. You also need to help educate some of your other providers. Some EMS providers associate lights and sirens with better care. Plus, if call volume distribution is based on lights and sirens, you could accidentally affect a fire department or an ambulance department's call volume. And some of their budgets are dependent on their call volume. So you can't just slash their call volume and assume everyone's going to be happy. As far as going forward with this, what do you think are some of the steps that we need to do as ER doctors to try and help our local communities with this lights and sirens issue? So the first thing you can do is when you talk to a paramedic on the radio, really think long and hard before asking them to go lights and sirens to anything. Really think, does the risk to the public outweigh the benefit you're going to get from those few seconds? And I think if you really look at most medical conditions, you're not going to see the benefit. And the restriction of the, the policy where you're actually going lights and sirens for those cardiac arrest patients, those airway patients, how do you, how do you go about you know, redefining what, when to use it appropriately? So that's actually all dictated by the emergency medical dispatch criteria. So when you dial 911, at least in some areas, in the county we operate, that's how we do it. You dial 911 and the call taker walks you through, it's almost like a choose your own adventure. There's a prompt on the computer screen where they ask you various questions, if then type statements. And at the end, they're given instructions for if it's a lights or no lights response. As the EMS medical director, in many places you have a responsibility for reviewing these choose your own adventure criteria. 
And as an ER doctor, you may be asked for your input. So that's important to really understand that you can't just say, yeah, just go to everything, lights and sirens, that's fine. There's a real risk associated with this. So tell me, if somebody's out there starting their first job as an EMS director for, and, and their first job is to look at this policy, what would you tell them? What would be some things you would try and, t- try and help them with this? My first recommendation is find out what's currently going on, find out if there's any problems with it, review your emergency medical dispatch instructions, look at the current literature, talk to all of the stakeholders, and make sure that you have buy-in from your stakeholders and the public before implementing any changes. What are some of the things that you've learned going through this process yourself? Because I know you've had you know, some major changes to the policy here. So the thing that I learned the most is get buy-in before you make the changes. But this is something the public takes very seriously and it's not something that they're going to allow you to change without some significant questions. So I'd make sure that you have all your ducks in a row, that you have all your literature, that you have pre-prepared press releases and that you should probably send these out proactively. Meet with all of your uh, responder stakeholders early. Let them know why. Reassure them that you're not going to affect their call volume, that their jobs and their stations will still be intact. Why you're doing it to protect them and why that their response is still critically important to patient care, but you just want to do it in a safer manner. Wow. Excellent advice. And just before we go, what do you tell the paramedic who's out there and it's, it's difficult to know when things are, you know, when, when they're having to make the decision? Because a lot of times they have to make the decision whether or not this is something that they need to go lights and sirens. What do you tell them? How do you tell them to look at the situation? When I ask them, especially in the decision whether they should go lights and sirens to the hospital, I try to say, do you feel that the patient is going to die if they don't get there 30 seconds faster? Are you unable to maintain that airway, maintain that heart rate? Something that you say that, you know, that 30 seconds without that physician's involvement is going to kill this patient. Most paramedics go lights and sirens when they're uncomfortable. Part of your responsibility as the ER doctor is to educate them, make them more comfortable, make them more proficient so they can handle that and not have to unnecessarily endanger people. Oh, excellent. So to review... You would suggest if you're going to talk about your local policies regarding lights and sirens to go slow, to consider all the stakeholders involvement and to um, have some patience with this process. Is that right? Yes. Do not rush this process. But I think with education, everyone will come on board very easily. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the program. I hope to have you again. Thank you very much for having me.